Good morning. As uh, Will has already said, it is great to see your smiling faces. Um, having just recently come to North Campus, I really have not seen most of you without some kind of covering on, so uh, there will be some of you that I'm going to ask to put your covering back on before the morning is over, but I'll let you know. I'll let you know. You're probably wishing the same thing for me. So uh, we're going to uh, be looking at the resurrection and the idea is of justice this morning. So um, as we get ready to do that, let's just have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you. We praise you for the privilege of getting together. Uh, God, getting together and just being a family, loving one another, supporting one another, praying for one another, worshiping with one another. Father, may you receive our worship this morning. May you listen, Father, to our hearts as we just interact with your word. Through your Holy Spirit, Father, I pray that you would help us to have conviction where we need it, to praise you when we can. Father, to just walk through this passage, alert to the fact that you're trying to teach us something that's so important and is only possible because your son was taken from death and raised to new life. And Father, now we have a new standard, a new ability to live uh, as only those who identify with a resurrected Christ may. Thank you, Father. We ask for your blessing on this time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So in the past few weeks, we've been talking resurrection, right? Uh, in almost every imaginable way. Last week, we looked at the resurrection and faith. We kind of uh, looked at the story of Thomas, who was a man more like us than maybe any other person that we have studied in Scripture. Uh, he was a man that uh, had the privilege of traveling with Jesus, walking with Jesus, uh, seeing him do all those amazing miracles. Um, and yet, at the end of those three years, uh, when confronted with the claims by the other disciples that Christ had risen from the dead, you remember his famous line or infamous line when he says, I will never believe. And we talked a little bit about the fact that it's possible to have faith, to believe in Christ, but when we actually are confronted with the reality of the power of God in this world, uh, it just runs against the grain of how we normally live our life, and we're just not sure what to do with that. And whether we state it out loud or not, we probably are giving across the ideas, I, I don't think I can believe this. I, I don't think I know how to process this. And then Jesus, in his grace and his mercy, shows up to Thomas and says, put your fingers in the nail holes and search your hand in the side. Um, that's an amazing thing. And Thomas then meekly says, I do believe. And Jesus says, you're blessed because you have seen. You believe because you have seen. How much more so are those who believe who have never seen? And so that's where we are this morning. Now we're going to jump to the Apostle Paul, and we're going to look at the resurrection with the idea of justice. What is right in how we behave towards others, both to the world and to those within the church. Uh, some of us really hold to our rights. We hold to a God-given endowment. There is certain space, certain activities, certain attitudes that I have a right to hold to. They protect me, they protect my family, they protect my business. Uh, 
uh, my status in culture, and heaven help the person that seeks to tread on those God-given rights. Well, we're going to see this morning that Paul is going to open up our ears and our eyes to a different way of doing so. And so we're going to look in Romans chapter 12, and we're going to start reading in verse 14. And just before I start reading, let me say this. Um, what we're looking at here is a specific kind of uh, literary device. Uh, it, it's, it's something that was somewhat common in the ancient world called a paranasis. And the idea is that Paul is taking things and putting them in a certain order not to make a logical argument, not so that you can make an outline out of this, but he's just interjecting uh, commands and advice for us to live by without really any rhyme or reason. These are just things that he is saying. So he's taken the entire first part of the book of Romans and developed his theology, the theology of law and grace, of salvation. And by the time we get to chapter 12, he's ready to start instructing us on how much of a difference this should make in our life. So I'm going to start reading in verse 14. Keep that in mind. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Strong words. And as I was just saying, this is a specific literary device that Paul is employing. The people who were reading this in the first century would have understood immediately what he was trying to say, how he was trying to put it by the way that he wrote this. Uh, this paranasis is understood as having at least three characteristics, right? So Paul is using this style so that, first of all, he can make a moral exhortation. It's put there to urge people to adopt certain attitudes, right, and behaviors, uh, that's usually how it was used. Uh, secondly, Paranasus borrows heavily from other sources, from the Old Testament in Paul's case, but also from Jewish wisdom writings, um, even things that were not necessarily uh, spiritual or religious in nature. Uh, he was borrowing phrases and ideas from the culture around him that people would have recognized so that they immediately go, oh yes, that is a saying in our land. That is something that we all try to live by. And he's borrowing on those and putting them into this section. And then thirdly, it's loosely structured. Um, the writer, in this case Paul, deliberately moves quickly from one topic to another. He's hopscotching his way through this. So sometimes he's talking to the church, sometimes he's talking about us living in the world, and sometimes he's talking about different groups of people that exist in the church who had formerly not ever really gotten along together, in this case Gentiles and Jews, and he's instructing them. So it's left up to the listener, the reader, 
if Weird can understand where he's going with these topics. But by the time he completes this whole section, he's pretty much covered everyone. <clears throat> he's given us some things that are really good to think about. One of the mistakes that we make as we read this section is that we try to fit it into an outline and we say, well, this idea builds on this idea and possible to do that. But he really wants you to just take each one of these. It's kind of like eating a seven-course meal. I, I, I could blend it all into one plate. I could even take a fork and mish, mash it. You know, I had a friend in seminary that loved to do that. His kids would eat and then they would leave, as kids will do, parts of their food on the plate. Uh, he didn't care. I don't think he had taste buds, but he would take his plates and he'd scrape it onto his plate. And it, at the end, it would look not edible. But anyway, he would eat it and he didn't care, right? Sometimes that's what we do with scripture. But Paul is saying in this section, I want you to think about each of these separately. I want you to hold them apart. Each one is on a separate plate. And I want you to savor it. I want you to enjoy it. I want you to meditate upon it. I don't want you to mix it all together. These are important, important concepts. And so it would do us good diligence as we read this this morning to keep that in mind. So let's look at the first thing that Paul tells us in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you and do not curse them. Of all of the verses that Paul is going to be talking about here, he is borrowing. And one of the borrowing phrases is right here from the words of Jesus, right? That kind of sounds like something Christ would have said. And indeed, he did say this in a, in a sense in the Sermon on the Mount. Love your enemies, it says in Matthew 4, or 5, excuse me, and pray for those who persecute you. In Luke 6, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Christ gives us three imperative commands, right? To do good, to bless, and to pray. And Paul borrows from that, and he puts it in this first command. The wording here would suggest that we don't need to bless everyone that persecutes us, but rather is more focused on a personal opponent. There's two blessings in Paul's statement here in a juxtaposition to one, do not curse, right? So the word blessing here, eulogete, uh, is the idea, like we would take it in English, what's, what's a eulogy? Um, well, yeah, it's a blessing. It's, it's speaking nicely about someone. Typically at the end of life, at a funeral, someone eulogizes, they wax eloquent about what this person meant to them. We tell funny stories about them. We talk about how they made an impact on our life. And Paul is taking that concept and he's saying, bless them. Bless them. Eulogize them. They don't have to be dead. <laughs> you can do this in everyday life. I'm going to bless you. Bless, number one, right? Those who persecute you. And secondly, bless and do not curse them. So it's an emphatic statement. Bless others. That's probably not something that most of us are used to doing. Maybe you're uh, way ahead of me on this one, but Usually going through everyday life, we're not, you know, typically people who bless others. But Paul's saying that's part of the Christian life. That's something we need to focus on. The injunction here to bless those who persecute us is one of the most revolutionary statements in the New Testament. Uh, in the ancient world, this would have been unheard of. To bless those who have hurt me, who have shamed me, 
who have actually taken legal action against me? Are you for real? Are you serious? Uh, no. The whole idea in the ancient world was to do to someone else what they've done to you. And even some people from the Old Testament in the Jewish world would have said the same thing. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, right? But Jesus comes along and says, no, we're not going to do that. And Paul makes this a, a strong statement, right? This is so revolutionary. This is what's going to set Christianity apart from most of the other belief systems in Paul's day. And it can only be done through the power of God's Spirit. To do this in the flesh is always going to be ham-fisted and clumsy. But when we do it in the Spirit, the Spirit will lead us to that very thing, which is a blessing to that person. How am I going to eulogize someone that I really don't like? How can I say something nice about that person directly to them when there is such emotional bitterness in my heart? Where will I get the freedom to do that? Through the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' day, the listeners to Jesus' sermon, when he preached the Sermon on the Mountain, he said something similar to this. They would have immediately conjured up images in their mind, I am sure, of their Roman oppressors. Bless those who persecute me? Well, who persecutes us? It's the Romans. The Romans were that foreign power that came in and took over the sovereign rights of the nation of Israel. At one time, we were a proud people. We had kings, David and Solomon, right? Our, our empire stretched throughout Palestine. And today, we're under the subju subjugation of the Roman thumb. They can do whatever they want to us. In fact, as, as you look that up and you, and you think about the things that the Romans were doing to the Jews in the time of, of Paul, uh, they had a status for people that they felt had deserved punishment because according to Roman culture, uh, these people were not allowed to just exist in peaceable life. At the minimum, the Romans had taxed the Jewish people into poverty. For every dollar, if we can use that unit of currency for our purposes this morning, for every dollar that a Jew would earn, almost 80 cents of it would go to the empire or to the Sanhedrin, the middleman between the Romans and the Jews. Wow. So you had to live on just a small percentage of what you made, and they didn't make that much to start with. But more than that, the Romans could have done many things. They had a title for people that they wish to punish. Homo sacre. You are the man set apart. That's what it literally means. So if you would run afoul of the Roman authorities, if they just had an inkling that day that you look like a person that deserved punishment, and that happened frequently, they would give you that official title, homo sacre, meaning you're set apart. You're set apart for punishment. They wouldn't kill you. They weren't allowed legally to do that. However, it would put a mark on you that anyone else in your culture, in your society, that wanted to do inflict harm upon you had the right to do so without fear of legal reprisal. Wow. The Romans might even go so far as using one of their favorite punishments, the furca. The furca was a kind of a tree trunk, about five feet tall. They would look for one that would branch off into two branches, and they would tie that to your back and stretch your arms out in front of you and tie those two limbs to your arms. And you would be forced to carry that around with you all day long or as long as they deemed it was worthy. 
you might go with this for a week. But when you did so, it signifies to everyone that you were homo sacre, that you were not worthy of being treated with respect. And so people would taunt you, they would throw things at you. Uh, sometimes for people who had really violated the rules, you would be whipped or lashed. You would be given the title of a fursifer, somebody who was worthy of the furka. When you think about that, and then you get that image in your mind of Jesus carrying that heavy crossbeam through the streets of Jerusalem on his way to Golgotha to be crucified, now all of a sudden you think, wow, that's kind of typical for them, right? This was part of Jesus' punishment. He was homo sacre. He was set apart for punishment. The weight of that was so strong that he eventually had to drop to his knees and, they, and find someone else to pick that up and carry it. But this would have been a smaller branch, something that was designed just for the moment. So when Jesus says, bless those who persecute you, they all knew somebody that that had happened to. They all were aware, if it wasn't to them, of their uncle, their aunt, their, their nephew. Somebody had been punished by the Romans in doing this, and it caused them great pain. And so how do I bless them? How can I be sure I'm going to do that? Uh, I, I don't have anything in my life that is even similar to something of that severity, right? But we do get in situations where we feel that people are cursing us. Uh, sometimes our bosses, uh, bullies at school, uh, people in our family, uh, sometimes well-intentioned people still do things that cause us much pain. And Paul is just saying, as a believer in Christ, do this. His focus here is on the world, the Christian living in the world. Bless those who persecute you. This isn't just church gossip. This isn't infighting amongst the people of God. This is something that is serious and it's painful. Uh, in some cases, it caused harm. Well, let's move on to the next one, verse 15. Uh, Paul gives us some imperatives here, some commands. He says, do this, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Strong words. Uh, now he's focused from the world back to within the body of Christ. I think that's what the understanding is of this paranatic statement. We are supposed to have pleasure with someone else. And you think, well, reading this just off the top, that's not too hard. I can do that. Of all the commands he's going to make here, this might be the one that, in fact, is the most applicable to my life. I can rejoice with people. I can weep with people, but stop and think about it. Chrysotom, one of the church fathers, wrote, he said, may well be right in remarking that the admonition to rejoice with those who rejoice occurs first because it is more difficult. Wow. We are all inclined to shed a sympathizing tear with those who are suffering. We can do that. But envy and a sense of competition, that often hinders us from truly rejoicing with those rejoice. Think about that. That person that you really can't stand or that person that you feel like you're somewhat being compared to and they get a blessing they get something in their life that has elevated them, lifted them. They get that raise. They get that position. Uh, they're the ones who are asked to speak in front of people. I, I've seen it all when we do a family counseling, you, you, even within families, not just spiritual families, but physical families, you see people who can get very offended. 
And sometimes the offense comes because my brother, my sister, was honored by my parents, was honored by my grandparents. Uh, they got the majority of the, what was left in the will, all kinds of things. And Paul is saying, no, you know what our response should be? Let's just rejoice with them. You see, it's a step of faith. You know, last week we talked about the resurrection and faith. It comes into play here in resurrection and justice, doesn't it? Because if we have that kind of faith, if we really believe that our life is wrapped up in who Jesus is, that this life that we live today isn't all that there is, then it's somewhat easier to let go of our rights, to let go of those feelings that this isn't fair. Fairness, that's one of those concepts that gets in the way of this probably more than anything. I live my life by fairness. God is fair. And yet we all know who have lived any time at all that life is not fair. Life is not fair at all. You may work twice as hard as someone and yet they get the honor. Can you rejoice with them? Can you be happy with them? Uh, it's a challenge. Paul jumps on then into the next verse, and he says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. So he was talking to the world. Bless those who persecute you. He's talking to the church. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Now he's looking at the church again, but he's thinking about the disharmony that existed in his day between those who were Gentiles and those who were Jews. It was Paul's standard, as we know, as he came into new towns, that he would first stop at a synagogue, and he would there get a feel for what he was getting into and proclaim the gospel to God's own people, the Jewish people. But from there, he would move out into the outer circles of that city, and he would start witnessing to those who were Gentiles. And almost every church that Paul plants is a mixture of Jew and Gentile. And you would think, well, if they became to an understanding, a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, this would so easily move us into harmony, peace with one another, understanding of one another, a lack of nothing else, of infighting. But does it? Now, we know from what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that it didn't have that impact. In fact, even amongst Christ's original 12 disciples, there was a lack of harmony wasn't there. They were constantly picking at one another. And in Paul's time, Peter wouldn't sit and have dinner with the Gentiles. As a Jew who was trying to stay pure, he did not want to uh, mar his spiritual standing before his fellow countrymen by eating with people that normally Jews would avoid at all costs. And it took God directly confronting him with his, in a sense, prejudice to lighten up, to see it the way that God saw it. And then Paul writes that great chapter on love in 1 Corinthians 13. Love one another. This is what love is. And Paul is writing that here in Romans as well. Live in harmony with one another. There's an interesting verb that Paul uses throughout this sentence, right? In the Greek, it's phronane, and it basically means to think. But he uses it in three different ways here. Once as a command and two times as a participle. But live in harmony. Harmony is the first time he does that. Think. Think alike. That's what he's saying. 
you think like someone else thinks. So one of the challenges I think that all of us can experience and accomplish is when we meet people, especially the people that we're not used to seeing in church, someone new walks in the door and you say, I don't know that person. Well, how can you think like them? Well, you've got to start talking and get to know them. And if they touch upon something that you don't agree with, if they hit something or identify with something that you even take offense at, Paul is saying, no, learn to think like they're thinking. Learn to appreciate where they're coming from. Secondly, he says, do not be haughty. Same verb. Don't think proudly of yourself. So if I'm going to think like them in the first part of the verse, in the second part of the verse, I'm going to not think that the way I see life is far superior to the way you see life. This allows me to have peace with you, right? In Paul's day, it was not what the goal was. Peter should not have been thinking, I'm a Jew. I'm part of God's chosen people, the covenant people. We are far superior to you as Gentiles. We wash our hands before we eat. We cleanse ourselves. We go to Yom Kippur once a year. We are involved with feasts and festivals. We do everything that we can to submit our life choices to God. And what have you done? You walked in the door and all you did was say, I believe. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That was what we read last week, right? So many times that phrase was used. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And what? We're supposed to give you immediate entree into our body, into our group of people? I don't think so. And Paul says, well, whether you like it or not, Peter, there are brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not up to you to make that decision. Jesus wants them here. I hope that we're not in a position where we struggle with people that actually come in the doors of our church. But we could, right? We could. We could see people maybe of different race, different gender identity, different whatever. And we could just be saying, no, no, they don't belong here. This is not for them. This is only for those of us who understand what salvation is all about. But that's not what Paul is saying. He's using that, you know, that term, think like this. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly, right? Never be wise. And there's the third use, wise. Never be wise. Don't ever think that you are superior in your wisdom to someone else. It's hard to know what this phrase exactly is supposed to mean from what Paul's saying. There's two ways to understand it. One is, do not resist doing things of a lowly nature as far as jobs. Within the church, there were many things to be done in Paul's day. So when you walked in the door, just because you had a certain status or rank, I'm a Roman citizen, I'm part of the equestrian class, the plebeian class, I am a craftsman, a merchant, all of those things would raise me above being just a common, everyday peasant. Don't think of yourself that way. And, and get in there shoulder to shoulder, and let's accomplish things together in the church of Christ to honor him. That could be one thing. Or it could just be purely a mental thing. Since the verb he uses throughout this verse is mental, think, to think, it could just be simply don't allow yourself to think of yourself as being better than anyone else in the body of Christ. It just isn't true. You're not that better. You're supposed to think wisely that we are equal. In other words, some may be ambitious in seeking to rise on certain social status. 
And the thought may be, if I associate with this person, others are going to see that, and then their lowness will pass off onto me. Paul says that's not the way that Christians do it. Jesus became the lowest of the low, didn't he, for our sake? Yeah. <laughs> that's the truth of everything that Paul is saying in these first few verses, is we need to look at Christ. You know, It's only because of his example that we can do this. It says in Philippians chapter 2, which Paul will write, and he says, right, Jesus became a man. You know, he took upon himself the form of a man, even to the point of death. How much lower can it be than what we've already seen, that he was hung on a cross, that those nails were piercing his wrists, right? That people were yelling at him and throwing things at him, that the Romans were whipping him. He did all of that as God for us. He demonstrates humility. He demonstrates what it's like to live in uh, good society with everyone that comes. He demonstrates how to live with you and me. So the question that we could ask about Jesus is, for Christ, who's the one who persecutes? Who is the one who needs prayer? Who is the one who, to rejoice and weep with? Who is the smarter person? Actually, for him, there is no one smarter. There is no one who can rejoice better or weep better. But for us, our answer would always be, Christ is the one. And if I live for him, if I imitate him, then dealing with you is easy. It's easy. I can be like Christ. Deny myself. Not think more highly. I think Iowa City is prone to this, right? I mean, I th when I came to this church, I, there was a survey that had been done, I think the year before I arrived in 06, of Parkview Church. And over 50% of the people at Parkview have their master's degrees. Many of them have their doctorates. It's hard when you've had so much education and you've accomplished so much to actually walk this path, right? When I was in the church in Nebraska, all of my men, my elders on down, were ranchers. They were farmers. Many of them didn't read. Uh, when I did a men's Bible study, I often spent part of my week reading that week's chapter that we were going through into a tape recorder. And these guys would take it and they would pop it into their tractors, into their little uh, tape players, and they would listen to it. They could read, but they just, it was a struggle and they didn't have time. How bad and how wrong would it have been if I thought, man, I'm better than these guys? Christ says, we're one. We're one. So, bless those who persecute you. That's to the world, right? Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. That's to the church. And live in harmony with one another. That's still to the church, but he's talking about all disparate groups. We are one. There is no such thing as division in the church. There shouldn't be. There's no reason to think more of one group versus the other groups. Then we get into verse 17. And I'll just say this, from 17 through the end of this uh, section in verse 21, it's really one continuous thought in the original language, right? Uh, Paul, though he jumps on different things, it's all encapsulated into helping us. And in Paul's time, he is really focused here on how we as Christians should live in the world. So let's review that again. Repay uh, no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable to the sight of all. 
if possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, we know he's addressing the church when he says that. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That's the first section of this sentence, right? Right up through verse 19. 17 through 19, section 1. What is Paul trying to get across here? He's trying to help us to understand what our attitude should be to others. And, and he, again, is picking up on things that Christ said earlier. This is part of the parenthetic thought. I'm going to bring in other thoughts, things that you're familiar with, and I'm going to teach it to you. And it's not just Christ here. There were cultural allusions that are being made here in other wisdom writings. But specifically, he's borrowing also from the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 23, I love this verse. It says, if you meet your enemy's ox or donkey going astray... Many of you met somebody's donkey going astray lately. You shall bring it back to him, right? This is property. You know, you're out there and you see somebody's got it. The donkey was used to make everyday life well, to make it good. I could afford to make a living. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. In other words, hey, your donkey's having problems? Ha, last week mine was and you walked right past me. You didn't care. That's not your choice. This time, he says in a direct command, you shall rescue him from it. Proverbs chapter 17 says, if anyone returns evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. Proverbs 20 verse 22, do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord and he will deliver you. The Old Testament is full of statements like this. The, perhaps the difficulty of resisting revenge, as people would have thought of it back then, provoked Paul to add the word beloved in there. Um, that's supposed to be our attitude. He's addressing us as beloved, but we're supposed to have that attitude of beloved to other people. Even though believers are severely mistreated by others, they should never forget they are dearly loved by God and chosen to be his own. Rejection from others can be a deep wound, but the salve, the balm of God's love for us is the best healing. It doesn't matter what you say to me. It doesn't matter what you do to me. I have God. He's inside. And whatever you do to me, you do to God. Whatever you say to me, you say to Christ. He's taking care of me. I don't have to defend myself. I don't have to look to my own good. I don't have to look around me and worry that others might think I'm weak. I have to do what Jesus did. When he was brought before his accusers and they said, are you the king? What was his response? Oh, nothing. He was silent. The second part of this, going down to verse 20, to the contrary, so this counters those first three verses, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Great statement here. I'm sure uh, this is one of those cultural illusions. Uh, hungry, feed him. Thirsty, give him something to drink. People understood that. But to apply it to my enemy? Holy cow. That's radical Christianity. That's a radical thought to those people. And it's a symbolic statement, if you will, almost an idiom. 
He doesn't just literally mean go feed, go give them something to drink. He's saying do what is the highest good that you can to that person. What do they need? Wow. There have been a couple of times in my life, probably more than I like to cop to, where I have done something that has been hurtful to someone else. And all of a sudden, I am being gifted with something from them. And almost in every case, I was aware totally of what they were doing. They were heaping burning coals, right? They're trying to say, listen, it doesn't matter what you said. It doesn't matter what you did. Christ gives me the power to bless you, right? I'm going to give you what you need. That takes a lot of creative thought, by the way. It is not something that you can come up with in 10 seconds. You want to really think this through. What does my enemy most need? Christ, it says in earlier in Romans, even though we were his enemies, he died for us. He gave us what we needed the most, which was the offer of salvation freely given, the forgiveness of sins, so that we could come into the presence of God. And Paul does that here. He wraps this up by saying, this vengeance from the Lord, it's not a present day vengeance. I don't think I have to worry that God is going to just rain fire and brimstone down upon my enemy, right? He's saying at the end of time, for most of the time that Paul is writing, God's wrath is something that happens once we stand face to face with him. Because here's the truth. When I do this, when I show kindness to someone, when I give them food, when I give them drink, whatever it is that God has shown me to do for them, I'm leaving room in their life for them to hear the claims of Christ. It's actually possible now, since I've removed the tension, the anger, the frustration in our relationship, for them to hear the gospel of Christ. And we can't seek the vengeance from ourselves, nor from God at this moment. Because here's the truth. As you go through life, that person may at some point that enemy of yours received Christ as their Savior. And what was once your enemy is now your brother or sister in Christ. Now, if they get to that point, if they pass into that next life, and they have never done business with God, <clears throat> then they're going to have problems. So that tit-for-tat tactics that we can sometimes use, it's out that I'm going to make sure that you suffer as much as I suffer, or at least have an appreciation for that, that's gone. We're going to do for them what they would perceive as being the highest good. Oh, that's hard. That is so hard. But in so doing, we're removing ourselves from the equation as of the vengeance seekers, and we're leaving that for God. To do otherwise, Paul concludes is to say that evil overcame you. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. When we take our vengeance, we're just confessing as loudly as we do for Christ when we become a Christian. Now we're confessing, well, evil has overcome me. I'm going to live like the world, because that's what the world does, right? So let's summarize this. What are we supposed to do? Paul's saying in this little short pericope, bless, you know, Give eulogizing to other people. Let them know how much you think of them. Come up with great things to say about them. 
That's to the world, those who persecute you. Bless them. Secondly, rejoice. It's hard to rejoice with your enemy who might be getting something that you thought you deserved, but rejoice and weep. Direct commands to those of us within the church. Thirdly, live in harmony with one another. Humble yourself. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Frone, never be wise in your own sight. When I come to a conversation with people, no matter who they are or what their background is, I assume that they're wiser than me. I want to hear from them. I ask them questions. I don't pronounce. I want to listen, right? Lastly, do not repay evil for evil. And this is to the world. This gets serious. Paul's talking to people that lived in imminent danger of death. We don't face that, you know. In a sense, some of the things we go through are, are quite petty. But still, they hurt, and we suffer. And he says, in place of that, just leave room for the vengeance of God, right? That's not our hope. We hope that they'll come to know Christ, but when we do that, we give them the opportunity to hear the gospel. And we are really living that gospel before them by not returning upon their head the same uh, punishment that they put upon ours, right? Do every good thing that we can for them. Strong statements in these few verses. Wow. How different would our world be and how different would our churches be if we could live this way?